Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thursday, and welcome to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts keeping you company for the next couple of hours, where you might be headed to home or wherever that might be on this uh, somewhat wanting to rain, generally clear skies today, but more rain in the forecast. And boy, if you're heading toward Tahoe this weekend, bit of advice, don't. At least not until they get this avalanche situation straightened out. Pretty uh, pretty disquieting, isn't it? Amazing stuff how the weather has just continued to change in so many phenomenally odd ways here in the Bay Area. Well, the weather's not the only thing that continues to do phenomenally odd things. It's all over us. We talked yesterday about the issue related to why we don't have stricter laws dealing with sex trafficking and the abuse of both men and women in the sex uh, slave trade right here in the United States, right here in the Bay Area. Municipalities like Union City, California, turning to selling drugs. Well, yeah, I know it's legal, but nevertheless, it's still illegal federally, and it's still a drug selling marijuana to try to close budget gaps without regard to the impact on its residents. And um, in Sacramento, almost a virtual brick wall being built by the chair of the California Assembly Education Um that just strictly refuses to allow for any public debate, any public input over the question of parental rights and specifically whether or not a parent has a right to know. Joining me now with some insights, the president of the California Family Council, Jonathan Keller. Jonathan, Happy New Year to you. And I, I suppose to a certain degree we shouldn't be shocked, but yet there, there just seems to be this lingering sense that the politicians of this state seem to be so arrogant, have such a blatant disregard for parents. And I understand that a lot of this under the guise of, well, if a parent were to learn that his son or daughter was suddenly publicly identifying as the opposite gender, there could be repercussions, there could be a backlash. And so we're just doing it to protect the kids. Now, I'm not going to say that there aren't instances of that happening, but I don't know about you, but the people in my circle of friends and uh, relations at church and whatnot 99% of the parents that I know love their kids, would do anything for their kids, would be there for their kids through thick and thin. And I have to wonder if a lot of this debate or failure to want to debate in this case is just a red herring for something other, other agenda. Well, absolutely, Craig. First off, uh, Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Hopefully everyone had a wonderful Christmas break. Uh, But it is, unfortunately, we don't even get all the way to Epiphany. You don't even get all the way through the end of the 12 days of Christmas before the legislature is back at it. The first day up in Sacramento was Wednesday, 
the 3rd of January. Uh, my team at California Family Council and I had a press conference that we helped with that very first day. We had several different meetings and events, and as you mentioned, they are already starting to make decisions, starting to make big moves. One of those big moves that you noted is that still, even though it is the second year of a two-year legislative session, it's the very beginning of the session, uh, the Assembly Education Committee, led by Assemblymember Al Muratsuchi from Southern California, has decided that he will, once again, for the second year in a row, he will refuse to hear AB 1314, which is that parental notification bill from Assemblymember Bill Asaley. And Craig, you get you laid it out pretty well, but the, the gist of it is this bill essentially would just say that if a child begins identifying as transgender while at school, they are not hiding it with a school counselor, but they are publicly identifying as transgender. They were wanting to change the sex marker on their birth certificate and their official school records. They're wanting to start dressing with different clothes, be called a different name, use different pronouns. In some cases, they're even wanting now to use the opposite sex restroom. They're wanting to play on the opposite sex from their biological sex sports team. If all of that is happening, all this bill would say is if everybody else at the school, the teacher, the principal, the other kids, down to the janitor, if everyone else at the school knows that a parent's child is transgender, you cannot continue to hide that information from the parents. We're not talking about forced you know, outing, quote unquote. We're not saying that if there's a, a private conversation that a child has that they're struggling with gender dysphoria, that immediately the, the school psychologist or the school nurse has to run and tell the parents. What we're saying is the parents might not be the first to know. I mean, we, we realize, like you said, sometimes there's tragic breakdowns of communication between parents and children. They might not be the first to know, but goodness gracious, they can't be the last to know. Yeah, in particular, when you consider the fact that we place the onus of responsibility on parents to care for a child, raise a child, educate a child, meet that child's physical needs, make sure that they are uh, provided with uh, you know, healthy food, that they're going to be able to have a chance to have a decent education, everything that a child needs to succeed in life. And, you know, while, yes, there are bad apples out there, that can be spoken uh, to, to any any subset of of. of people anywhere on the planet for that matter. But this sort of bakes into the notion that we don't dare allow parents to know what's going on with their own flesh and blood children because somehow we can't trust them, but wait for it, but we can trust the state. I mean, really? Truly? Uh, that's absolutely right, Craig. And it really gets to the question of who owns children, who, whose responsibility ultimately is it? And as believers in Christ, we know that we see all throughout Scripture that God does not place children uh, in the care of a bureaucratic state. He doesn't place children in the care uh, even, at, although I think it's important, he doesn't even place children primarily in the care of a church community. He first and foremost places children with their mother and father. And it's one reason why at California Family Council we believe that God's design for marriage, man and woman, for life, that is the best place, the best environment in which to raise children. 
And certainly we do not think that the state, especially, you know, God forbid, a state like California should be deciding for themselves that they know what is the best for every one of these children, that they should be purposely hiding and keeping secrets from children, and essentially setting up a series of surrogate surrogate parents, whether it is social workers, whether it is school counselors, uh, whether it is volunteers who are running these after-school clubs and programs. I mean, ultimately, children are the domain of their parents, and God has given those parents the primary duty and responsibility to care for them. And, uh, Craig, this is one reason, I mean, I'll just be honest with you, my wife and I were homeschooling our six-year-old. Our, our three-year-old is still not quite school age yet, but um, I, uh, I know that homeschooling, I know that private Christian schooling is not an option for every family in the state. But I would just warn everybody who's listening, uh, if your children or if your nephews or nieces, your, your friends, your family, kids in the neighborhood, if they are in public school, you need to urge those parents to be on guard, be on watch, because this is coming... If it's not already at a school near you, I guarantee you it will be there soon. Yeah, undoubtedly so. And sadly, Ed, Ed, Committee Chair Al Mirasucci continues to block this being brought forward for even debate, even discussion, which is probably what has motivated a group I've never heard of, but I think we're going to be appreciative of, Protect Kids California. I understand that they are looking to collect signatures for a ballot initiative that would mandate notification. Essentially, if the legislation won't do its job, we'll do it for it. That's right. And we're good friends with the folks over there at Protect Kids CA. Uh, I I strongly encourage everybody, um, when you have an opportunity to sign that ballot initiative, I encourage you to do that. If you'd like to find out more, that is a a good ally and sister organization of California Family Council. You can just go to protectkidsca.com. And you can find out more about that. We've written a bunch about this also on our website. If you'd like more information, if you'd like to see some interviews with the proponents of this initiative, our website, californiafamily.org, you can learn more. But, Craig, you're right. This is something that, sadly, uh, Almer Suchi, again, you mentioned, it's not just that he says, I'm not going to vote for this. He, at this point, is using his position as the chair of the Assembly Education Committee to block even the opening of debate. Uh, he, he said in a press release last year when he first blocked the discussion and debate on this bill, he said that to even allow a discussion, to allow Assembly Member Bill Asaley to bring this to the floor, to have people testify in support and share why they support this, this important legislation, He actually said that even opening the debate would provide, in his words, a platform for so-called hateful rhetoric directed at the trans community. And look, Craig, nothing could be further from the truth. I I have spoken with families that have children who experience gender dysphoria. I've spoken with young individuals, young men and women, who formerly were transgender, and they have now desisted from that transgenderism and they are they're once again seeking to live as their biological sex they all support this legislation they support it because they love and care for kids that are struggling and they want them to be supported they don't want them to be hidden away from their parents 
Well, this just demonstrates, as I suggested, that there has to be something more to this than what meets the eye. <coughs> Clearly, there is an underlying agenda uh, that has uh, at the core the pretext of, well, we just we're fearful for the kids. And they just essentially want to say, hey, we as the state, we know more than you do, parents. <coughs> it's tragic. Information available, CaliforniaFamily.org. That's CaliforniaFamily.org. You're going to be hearing more about uh, this effort of collecting signatures for a ballot initiative coming soon. Our thanks to Jonathan Keller, president of the Cal- <laughs> all choked up, president of the California Family Council for that update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 21 minutes after the hour here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline. The Biden administration says allegations that Israel has committed genocide in Gaza are unfounded. State Department spokesperson said such allegations should be made with the greatest of care. This ironically comes after South Africa has presented a case to the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide in its war against Hamas of all states. Remarkable. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Anthony Bilkin is in Cairo today with talks with Egyptian President el-Sisi over the Israeli-Hamas war. Specifically, there are concerns over the loss of life and whether or not this may potentially spill over and escalate into other parts of the region. To get an update as to what's been going on since the initial sneak attack on Israel back in October, we are joined by Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. He is also a columnist for Newsweek and a regular contributor to the Washington Examiner. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for being with us today. I guess one of the big questions as this war is dragging into four months, five months, and and there are, I think, some legitimate potential concerns of escalation, particularly given the fact that Israel is surrounded by hostile forces and, um, quite frankly, is is generally alone in the region. Um, whether or not this potentially could escalate and what the end game here is, so to speak, for either side. I mean, certainly the, the, the complete nullifying of the ability of Hamas to carry out terrorist attacks against Israel is an important goal for the state of Israel. But for the other side, what, in your opinion, is their end game here? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, thanks uh, first uh, for having me on. Um, you know, that's a very good question that nobody seems to ask. Is well, what did Hamas intend by October seventh and the atrocities, the unspeakable atrocities it committed? And indeed, what is the endpoint of everything that has come from that in the last three months? We've seen this international surge of anti-Semitism, including on the streets of American cities and on American college campuses. And today we see the latest manifestation with this farce in The Hague, where the International Court of Justice is arraigning Israel for the charge of genocide for its war against a genocidal organization. Now, of course, Hamas's goal is very simple. It wants to destroy the Jewish state. It wants to kill as many Jews as it can. That's what it tried to do on October 7th. That's what its goal has always been. That's why peace has you know, been elusive in the Middle East for decades, because... No Palestinian organization, not the so-called moderates of Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, or the so-called extremists of Hamas, 
can accept anything that would force them to accept the legitimacy of a Jewish state no matter where its borders are drawn. So this is about prejudice. It is about the belief that the Jews should be treated differently than any other people in the world, having no right to, you know, live in peace and security or have the right of self-defense in their own homeland. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's pure anti-Semitism. I mean, that's what it boils down to. I mean, it's impossible to ignore that any longer. So it's, it's a long war. Not, you know, Israel isn't completely alone. Um, there are people in the Arab world who don't want to be part of this war. And indeed, even some of its avowed enemies are cognizant of Israel's strength, which is why Iran and its you know, auxiliaries in Hezbollah, and which control Lebanon, have not joined in and started a full second front against Israel to help Hamas because they know that they would be they would suffer too and they would suffer far more than the suffering they could inflict on Israel. But you know this is an existential fight. I mean, if you speak to Israelis, if you talk to people who have been fighting this war or are living on the home front, they understand this as an existential struggle for their existence. That's what it's about. I mean, we could, we could talk about all the specifics. We could go into great detail about all of this. But that's what it boils down to. This is a war to destroy Israel. Nothing less. So this essentially becomes a no-win situation for Israel. I mean, clearly it was unprovoked in the beginning. I mean, you know, who 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 marches into a residential neighborhood in the kibbutz and attacks families in their sleep, defenseless families, at six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday? I mean, you know, if if there was a bone of contention to pick with the Israeli government over Israeli settlements, settlements or a, a political debates and things of that sort, well. Clearly, they've demonstrated they have access to enough military weapons and equipment. You know, why not try to attack the Knesset? I mean, something that seems to at least around the periphery say, OK, from a global political perspective, at least we can kind of see that they're trying to make a point here. But what they've done with this attack, and then most shockingly, I mean, I understand that many people are upset that, that Israel has kind of come back and, you know, you hit me with a hammer, I, I, I drop a whole building on your head. But, you know, historically, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that Israel has needed to respond in such a fashion, because if she doesn't, if there is any sign of, of, of weakness or uh, hesitancy, then the enemy fights even harder, and all of a sudden you get into a significant prolonged war or you invite them to engage in, in other sources or other, other sites to attack. And so the fact that the response by Israel has been as full and as swift as it has been is not of a surprise. I think what I'm finding surprising is the fact that there's not more sympathy and support for Israel in the global community and even in the United States. I mean, we, local city council meetings are having people showing up saying, stop the genocide against the Palestinians. But nobody ever says a word about Israel's right to defend herself. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Let me, let me just hone in on that last point that you made. Hamas did what it did in large measure because, you know, it, it made a miscalculation about what Israel's response would be. Obviously, I don't think they thought that Israel would um, hit them back as hard as they can. Although, you know, in Hamas's calculation, if they kill Jews that's good they think that's good for them 
if Palestinians die as a result of their actions, they think that's good for them too. But the point here, the spectacle of killing Jews, of, of humiliating, of torturing, raping, killing entire families, they thought this would provoke a surge of anti-Semitism around the world, that the, the, the victimization of Jews would encourage people to come out and do so. Now, when you speak of why it is that there is such a lack of sympathy, especially among people who consider themselves progressive in this, in this country, let's just ignore the rest of the world, let's just talk about America, it's because they have adopted this, you know, woke neo-Marxist ideology that defines Israel and the Jews as white oppressors. It's, the whole, it's something we discuss often in this country in a different context about critical race theory, intersectionality. But, you know, the Jews are the canaries in the coal mine here. As toxic as those ideas are for America, this, this ideology defines Jews and Israel as white oppressors, even though the conflict in the Middle East is not about race. You know, Jews and Arabs are the same race. The majority of Israeli Jews are themselves people of color, color by the definition of the American left, left because they trace their origins to the Middle East or North Africa. But they think that Jews don't have rights. They think they have no right to a country. They have no right to, to self-defense. Therefore, they're chanting in the streets, you know, from the river to the sea, which means destroy Israel, even though I'm sure many of them can't identify either body of water in that phrase. Or for, you know, globalizing the Intifada, which means terrorism against Jews wherever they live. This is the impact of a long campaign. You know, you know this whole idea that Zionism is racist, that Jews have no rights. This was an information campaign gone under the Soviets, you know, and, and which they, you know, managed to um, market around the world in the United Nations. It's made a comeback in the last 20 years. And it's made a comeback even on American college campuses and throughout our society. That's what's behind this crazy double standard by which Israel is the only country that is not allowed to fight for its own survival. And, you know, as much as, you know, they say, well, Israel's dropping a building on them. They, Israel was hit with a hammer. Israel is still fighting this war with, a, with an arm tied behind its back under rules of engagement that the United States did not observe when it was fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, with restrictions on the rules of engagement that um, make it very hard and actually endanger Israeli soldiers. You know, if they wanted to not you know, suffer any casualties, they could have just flattened Gaza. Instead, they are going carefully, as carefully as they can, trying to attack Hamas positions. You know, they've tunneled underneath. You know, they, they, they guard themselves with civilians. They, they fight from schools and hospitals and residential neighborhoods. Um, they try to have as many of their own people killed as possible. Israel's trying not to kill as many Palestinians as possible. But the details of this false genocide charge are almost beside the point. The whole point of the slander of Israel, which is heard in the United States, as well as you know in The Hague, in the International Court of Justice, is to treat the Jews as unworthy of having rights. This is a revival and legitimization of anti-Semitism. When you treat Jews differently than you would treat anybody else, 
that's anti-Semitic. Yeah, you know, and the other point here too, Jonathan, I'm afraid that we're we're missing important historical points. Uh, you know. It's sometimes difficult to draw easy comparisons, but but at least a, a, a basic comparison that hopefully anybody listening who has a high school grade education in in uh, in history will understand this. When, for example, Nazi Germany unleashed that Mission Barbarossa, the attack on the Soviet Union in uh, 1940, I guess it was. Um, and there was the sudden swift progress of the Germans into the Soviet Union. They kept reaching deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you ever want a frightening lesson in history, read about the Battle of Stalingrad, for example. Russia could have said, they've invaded our territory. We're going to respond in kind. We're going to repel the invaders. We're going to kick them back to the border. And then once they arrived at the border, said, that's okay. Don't do it again. But... Stalin understood, and I'm no fan of his, but Stalin understood, you can't just stop at the border because Germany was so deeply entrenched for the long haul, the long-term plan, which is clearly what Hamas has demonstrated with its sophisticated system of tunnels that's almost as, as brilliantly constructed as the BART tunnel underneath the bay— Israel understands that if you just simply retaliate, say, okay, eye for eye, ear for ear, we're going to repel you and be done with it, leaving intact all the weaponry, all the tunnels, all the methodology, all of the the entrenchments, (laughs) you would be foolish to think that that would be the end of it because they're going to regroup, reorganize, and hit you again. So you've got to... Cut off the enemy's ability to wage war against you, which is ultimately what the Russians knew they had to do in marching all the way into Berlin to shut down Nazi Germany. And the parallel here, I think, is is is, is an important one, um, that if you recognize your enemy is deeply entrenched with long-term plans, you need to have a long-term style Response. We'll come back to more of the conversation. Jonathan Tobin, Editor-in-Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with Jonathan Tobin, Editor-in-Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. Jonathan, I, I'm going to go where a lot of reporters are not willing to go. And see if you follow me there and can shed some light. Um, as, as we try to make sense out of this senseless attack, I just have this gnawing feeling. I mean, I, I understand it from the standpoint of Hamas as to kind of what's in it for them. But I can't help but think that there are also other bad actors, other instigators that have a dog in this hunt that would directly benefit from a prolonged war war in the Middle East, an escalation of a war in the Middle East that might draw in other other uh, bad actors, including countries like Iran or um, Lebanon, for example, perhaps more so Syria, and that the, the long-term end game might be to not only create tremendous disruption in the Middle East, but why do I have a feeling that there could be third-party uh, proxy participants in this, thinking of somebody like Putin, who could benefit from creating a big mess in that part of the world to distract the United States from 
our ability to be spread too thin could open up a door for a country like China to go after Taiwan, a country like Russia to finish its job um, against Ukraine, or perhaps even worse things going on. Is there any kind of validity to that sort of suspicion? Well, I, I think if you're looking for a direct line to, you know, another party outside of, you know, Israel and the Palestinians who who has fomented this, who has aided this, obviously Iran. Iran is a principal funder of Hamas and um, is an instigator here. Um, they have an interest, you know, they're, they share Hamas's goal of Israel's destruction. They have their own goal of achieving uh, regional hegemony in the Middle East. This is part of that along with uh, their other proxies, the Houthis, and their attacks on American shipping in, in, in the region. Um, as far as Russia, um, you know, I think it's more of a, they're hoping that this is a distraction, that they will somehow help them. They are, because you know, they, they are more closely aligned with Iran uh, and against Israel than they have been before their war in Ukraine. I think it's certainly China uh, has an opportunistic uh, interest in you know worsening this. I think we've seen on its you know on its social media empire uh, TikTok where they are weaponizing you know the algorithm to increase anti-Semitism. I, I think they're certainly hoping to benefit from this in some way. Um, but I, I don't think we should, you know, I think that's a, a you know, a somewhat of a distraction from, you know, the actual war itself. I don't think China, I think China would hope to benefit from it. Um, but, you know, they didn't start this war. They, you know, this is, this is about Hamas and the Palestinians and their international cheering section, international intersectional cheering section. Um, uh, you know, it's principally aided by Iran. And, uh, so I, you know, I, listen, I, I think the, as I tried, to, as I said earlier, the origins, the ideological origins of, uh, a lot of the ideas that we're hearing, you know, in our discourse here in this country, which is, you know, sort of weaponizing, you know, attacks on Israel and fueling anti-Semitism, it traces back to the old Soviet Union and neo-Marxism. Um, the whole woke ideology is fueling anti-Semitism in this country, and to the extent that it has become mainstream, and it has, you know, with, you know, sort of the woke DEI catechism being accepted throughout, you know, dominating academia, infiltrating the corporate world, being adopted by the U.S. government under President Biden. I, I think this is, you know, this is making it, a, you know, this is this helps uh, those who are trying to demonize and delegitimize Israel and and. Jewish right. Oh, undoubtedly. And, and I, let me I, just, to, to be yeah, perfectly so, clear, let me be, be very I, I frank in saying my, 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 my suggestion here is not to say that Russia lit the match. All I'm suggesting is that I can certainly see a country like Russia, like China, putting a little bit more fuel on the fire because of their potential benefits. But I think at the core, if we talk about what lit the match, uh, clearly hatred toward Israel and the denial by these people people to allow Israel to exist in any form and fashion uh, has been at the very center of this, has been at the nuclear of this uh, since day one. Yeah, I think that's true. I want to go back for a moment to 
uh, the analogy that you raised to the you know the last days of, of the Nazi Empire and the destruction of the Nazis in Berlin in 1945, um, you know, we are often told by you know the smart people, the foreign policy establishment, you know the people who write op-eds in the New York Times and the Washington Post, that Israel's quest is is futile because you can't destroy Hamas. Hamas is an idea. You have to make peace with it. You have to somehow appease it. And even President Biden, who has talked out of both sides of his mouth about this war, is similarly, on the one hand, saying he supports Israel and its war against Hamas, but trying to reward the same people who are perpetrating the war against Israel with, you know, his plans for a post-war scheme. Um, The only way, you know, to destroy the Nazis was to destroy the Nazis. They had to be completely eliminated, militarily defeated, devastated. Unfortunately, that took, that required uh, my father's generation, um, you know, as well as the Soviet Union, basically leveling Nazi Germany. You know, Germany's cities were rubble by the end of the war, um, enormous civilian casualties. But in the end, that was the only way to defeat the Nazis. And by defeating the Nazis, they defeated Nazi ideology. The German people were forced to realize that the lies and the, you know, the, the hate that they had imbibed and supported and carried out was it was a dead end. And if they wanted to have a productive future, they had to abandon it. And they did. Thank God, Germany became a normal country again. Um, the only way the Palestinians um, will have a future that involves peace and a normal life is if they completely reject the ideology of hate that underlies Hamas and all of its various imitators and be willing to make their peace with the existence of Israel. The only way that happens is if Hamas is completely defeated, which is why all these calls for a ceasefire, all these efforts to hamstring Israel's military campaign are counterproductive for peace. Because they're they're seeking to let the perpetrators of the unspeakable atrocities of October 7th survive and indeed triumph. And that's just a path, as you said before, to future war and more bloodshed. The only way to end the bloodshed is to completely eliminate the genocidal, really modern-day Nazis of Hamas and and their supporters. Not to say that that's all, you know, Israel doesn't want to kill all the Palestinian people, far from it. But unfortunately, Hamas, contrary to what President Biden said, is popular. It's remained popular after October 7th among its own people. The only way that changes is if Hamas is eliminated. And anything that prevents Israel from doing that is actually the worst thing possible for the future of the Palestinians. Yeah, because you just create this this tinderbed that that while you might see the flames begin to die down, it's going to continue to burn, uh, you know, kind of kind of below the eye line, and any little thing can rekindle that flame into a full blown inferno at any moment, which, quite frankly, is probably uh, part and parcel to the events of October the seventh. Jonathan Tobin, editor in chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, John. Jonathan, we appreciate so much your time. Information available on the web at jns.org. That's jns.org. 548 from KFAX. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Well, we're back. And um, January, of course, is Sanctity of Life Month. And um, as we celebrate the end of Roe versus Wade, we also have to be um, reminiscent, I think, of the tragic loss of lives over the course of, what, almost 50 years from 1973 um, through uh, three years ago and two or two years ago. And uh, as we recognize the importance and value of life, we lead off this segment with a conversation with the CEO of Real Options, Valerie Hill. Valerie, Happy New Year to you. This, as I say, is Sanctity of Human Life Month. And uh, with that, there's a number of things that's going to be taking place in and around the Bay Area. So tell us what's going on and how Real Options is involved. Okay. Well, thank you. Happy New Year to you, Craig. It's great to be with you today. Well, we we also want to remember that that uh, California is an abortion sanctuary state, and um, we are still dealing with abortion. In fact, it's on the rise um, in the states, you know, where it's being promoted, and California is one of those states. So as a church, in the body of, as the body of Christ, we don't want to forget about those men, women, and babies that are still being affected today by abortion, which is, you know, why we're so excited to have a full staff, which we've been praying for for years, of trained nurse sonographers in all of our clinics. It hasn't been easy to accomplish here in the Bay Area with five medical clinics, and our goal is to safeguard 7,400 men, women, and students, and that includes 1,100 babies this year in 2024. So, we are ready to serve the community, and we're excited about what God is doing. And our education program is booming, which you would probably love to hear about. Um, it's such an encouragement to us as we see thousands of students and parents positively impacted by our healthy relationship and our optimal health curriculum in local schools, in youth groups, in churches, and also in community clubs like the Boys and Girls Club. And we are really growing uh, into the East Bay this year and starting in a new school in Oakland this month. So we're we're excited. We've got a lot happening and uh, also want to serve the churches. So that's why it's important for pastors to talk about and teach on the sanctity of human life, that we're all created in God's image, that he has a plan and purpose for every person. And we would love to come alongside those pastors if they want us to come in and share about life, share our personal testimonies, share about the services that Real Options has to offer, not just to the wider community, but to everyone in the church, those that are possibly facing an unplanned pregnancy that they're not talking about, or those that might need STD testing and treatment, and then the students that need our curriculum in their in their uh, church youth groups, and the parents. We love doing parent groups in churches and getting the parents on the same page with that optimal health uh, curriculum and way of guiding their students, their kids. So. There's so much we can offer, plus our reproductive loss healing, support groups, and Rachel's Vineyard retreats. We have a full retreat in February, which is amazing to have a wait list, but we've got five more scheduled this year. So there's plenty of opportunity for us to come alongside the church and serve 
those in the church and those outside of the church throughout the day. And, you know, that educational component is so critically important because, let's face it, if, if we can, through education, um, modify behavior, equip yeah. men and women, boys and girls, with the kind of information and understanding and knowledge, <laughs> knowledge leads to wisdom, of course, yeah. <coughs> pardon me, to be able to change their conduct, we can not only literally save lives, but save a lot of folks from an awful lot of pain and heartache. So I, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that there is so much wonderful emphasis on that educational component. Yeah, we're, we're very, very blessed and excited about it because advancing a culture of life has to start with prevention. And prevention starts with education. So we've been at this for at least 32 years that I know of, but never before have the doors been opened so wide in public schools, in private schools, in local churches. I just think it, we've come to that time period where it, it seems so dark, but God has light and he has truth and he has hope for people. And that's part of what we're doing with education is giving kids hope, giving them guidance about delaying risk, delaying making serious decisions like sex, learning about boundaries, learning about their value and their worth as a person. And, you know, there's, there's so much for them to understand about their own love language, about how to care for themselves and to recognize toxic people so that they can have healthy relationships. Kids shouldn't be, you know, involved in what they are today with sexting and cyberbullying and uh, just the pressure. I mean, some schools have called us in simply because they're having some terrible problems with people being attacked and, uh, you know, the, the rape situation or... Uh, over, you know, just stepping over boundaries and kids needing to learn about consent, needing to learn what a healthy boundary is and what love really looks like and what healthy relationships really look like. I wished I would have learned that back in middle school or high school. You know, we just did. We learned the basics and that was it of of the birds and the bees, as they used to say. Right. We learned, learned the basics and then learned the hard way. Yeah, and then learn the hard way, make the mistakes, and have the regrets. And uh, thank God he saves us, you know, from those regrets. But Indeed so. One of the big yeah. educational elements that you're involved with annually that, that also helps to serve as a means of raising awareness and, and certainly resources for um, real options is your annual Walk for Life. And while it might seem on the 11th of January to be premature to be talking about an event on March 2nd, that date's yeah. going to be here before we know it. So tell us a bit about the upcoming March uh, Walk for Life, March 2nd. Thanks so much, Craig. Well, it is our annual event. It's it's a very fun uh, family event we hold at Marshall Cottle Park in San Jose on Saturday, March 2nd. It's also a 5K run, so runners love coming out. We have a professional timing company, and um, we have on-site registration, but a lot happens beforehand, as you said, and people are already registering in local churches, forming teams, small groups, uh, family and friends, and it's a little friendly competition that happens 
seeing how many pledges and how much support we can gather from friends and coworkers on a really easy to use crowdfunding platform just makes it super easy for people to give, to support the efforts of those that are coming out to walk or run on that day to support our life-affirming medical clinics, our education and restoration programs here in the Bay Area. So we really encourage people to come out and raise funds for the cause of safeguarding lives in the Bay Area and making people aware of our life-affirming services and celebrating life. So it's it's different than the March for Life that happens this month in Washington, D.C., and the one that happens in San Francisco. Those are awesome, big, huge speaker events. This is about 600 people usually. It's not small, but it is a fun family event uh, for the morning. Uh, God usually blesses us with sunshine, and uh, we get to raise funds and make people aware of what he's doing through real options. And as Valerie mentions, the Walk for Life will be coming up on March the 2nd, and the great way to get involved, learn how to come out, whether you spend the day, be part of the walk, um, maybe be a volunteer, just come out and so- show some support and take an opportunity to get educated. You can check out details on the web by going to friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. Don't forget now that the brand new year is here. You want to get involved, you want to make a difference. Great organization to volunteer with, and you can get a tour facility near you and get more information about volunteerism and how you and your church can help support Real Options and how Real Options can support your church ministry as well. Check them out online at friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. Our thanks to Valerie Hill, CEO of Real Options, for that update. All right, speaking of updates, we're going to take a bit of a time out. We'll come back. It is Church of the Week coming up around the corner as the Thursday edition of Lifeline continues. 